Hello from Estonia and welcome back to the Startup in Estonia podcast produced by Startup Estonia and hosted by me, Adam Rang. This is the final episode of uh, season three. Um, I've got to say, I've never actually hosted a podcast before, so I've been a bit unpolished, uh, but I'm really grateful for all the feedback you guys uh, have given me over the past five episodes of this season. Um, and in this season, we wanted to explore different aspects of building a startup with expert advice from the people who have already done it themselves. So we wanted to know what they got right and what they got wrong. Because, you know, we all make mistakes and it's it's just really good to be open about these things. What's more important is what we learn from them. So we've been talking to some awesome founders with lots of different digital services in today's show, though, we're going to do things a little bit different, something very unusual to a lot of us in the startup world. We're going to talk about physical products, and we're joined by Christian Marouster, the founder and CEO of CoModule. Welcome, Christian. Hello. Happy to be here. Thank you. So we're going to learn a lot more about CoModule soon. Um, I just want to remind listeners, though, like in the first episode, we were interviewing Rain Ranu, a startup founder who became a film director, and he was talking to us about how to make a compelling company story. Um, but Rain is the director of one of my favorite movies, which is Chasing Unicorns, an Estonian movie. Christian, I don't know if you've seen it before. Of course I have. Ah. Uh, we booked the whole cinema for our team. Ah, oh, wow. <laughs> um, and there's actually a very, very good story with it. Um, the whole idea of the movie was to build an autonomous bike, if mm. you remember correctly, a mm. self-driving bicycle. Um, when we started in 2014 with CoModule, uh, we were going to our first big fair, Eurobike fair. It's the biggest bike fair in the world. Mm. Nobody knew us, so we were discussing we should we should build something special to get media attention. So we sat down in a, in a room and we're thinking, hey, what could we do? Some you know cool prototype or product that would get people's attention. Uh, everybody besides one guy were mechanical engineers. And this one guy, Hagar, a co-founder, he, he's, a, he's a software engineer. And he was like, hey, guys, but let's build a self-driving bicycle. Mm. And they're all like, oh, God, you bloody programmer. Just, <laughs> you know, go do your things. So we think for the whole day, uh, we don't come up with very good ideas. We just have some list. We go home and in the morning we came back and everybody's like, yep, we don't have a better idea. Self-driving bicycle it is. So basically in 2015, we built a three-wheel self-driving bicycle. Mm. We call it the world's first uh, autonomous e-bike prototype. And we took it to this German fair and um, we did a press conference. Two people showed up. But it actually worked. So if you want to see it, you should uh, put Der Spiegel in this German newspaper, Der Spiegel, and then co-module in Google, and you will see a very funny video about it. Uh, maybe you can link it in the okay. in the YouTube later. And anyway, we built this kind of prototype thingy. We did a press conference. Two people showed up, two journalists. But then it turned out that one of them was working for you know, like a news agency, mm -hmm. something like Reuters, but the German mm -hmm. version of it. And she got super excited about it. And she wrote about it. And then we started getting calls from different German newspapers and ended up in a video story from Spiegel, which is like, you know, Delphi mm -hmm. in Estonia, like the biggest online newspaper. Um, so that was a very funny thing. Uh, we got a lot of media attention in building the world's first autonomous e-bike prototype. And um, later I got calls from like German Post saying, hey, we would be interested in this technology. And we're like, what the, f I mean, like, should we build self-driving bicycles? And then I actually reached out to some of my 
colleagues or, or uh, mates from uh, Teltech. And then one of them said, I just wait for two weeks. And then two weeks later, Starship announced and came out. Mm. So it was a very weird setup. But the funniest thing was that when Unicorn uh, movie came out, we went with the whole uh, team to watch it. And it was so much more hilarious for us than it was for other people because we have done it before. Uh, and so did Rain base that? No, okay. no, Rain didn't know about it. He found out after the premiere that we had ah. done it. I sent him the link, and he was like mind blown. Ah. So uh, the f- the, yeah, the funny part was that you know you built this. You, you kind of sit down as as j- directors, and you think, hey, what would be the craziest story that we could mm-hmm. make a movie out of it? Hey, let's build a self-driving bike, and then it turns out that somebody already has done it. So, so this yeah. is art imitating real life. Yeah, it's documentary. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so for those who haven't seen it, like it's a uh, Chasing Unicorns is a very funny Estonian movie that's like a parody of the Estonian startup scene. Um, the reason why I was going to mention it is because there's one scene that I find really funny, which is when they're in this uh, Uber and, uh, or no, there, there's a US investor who thinks he's in an Uber and it has to be pointed out to him that like, no, actually the driver is the head of the Estonian Manufacturers Union. And uh, the investor replies, oh, he actually makes things. Yeah, he's an Uber driver. He just doesn't know it yet. Um, and it's very funny, but, you know, we thought, it, then we actually had um, Sandra Sarov from Bolt who came to join us in a recent episode of this podcast. Um, so Bolt is, uh, for those that don't know, like Uber, but... Uh, better um because we, we're totally uh biased here because uh, bolt is uh, an estonian startup of course um but uh, she explained that actually bolt has also become a manufacturing company and we just you know thought that was so uh so interesting and we didn't have too much time to go into it more in detail um but we we thought it'd be kind of yeah a good idea to explore this a bit more kind of like how do you build a startup around physical products like we talk so much about digital services so let's get out of our comfort zone and let's talk about actually making uh, physical products and um, so Christian you're we thought you're going to be the best person to help us with that you're the CEO and founder of CoModule um, can you give us the elevator pitch like what is CoModule CoModule was built uh, or founded to connect vehicles to the internet so we started in 2014 uh, creating iot products iot technology to connect bikes and scooters to the internet Uh, when we started in 2014 nobody understood why we're doing that Mm. Uh, people were like hey why do you want to put a sim card in a bicycle Mm. it doesn't make any sense uh, we felt already in 2014 that uh, you know micro mobility or light electric vehicles are going to have a significantly more important role in the society than they had then. Um, and today, I think uh, nobody would ask why would you need to connect these vehicles because of the scooter sharing and bike mm. sharing. Uh, the only way how you can rent a bike or scooter is, is through internet and through sending a command to them. So basically, CarModule was built as a company to create IoT technology and sell this to vehicle manufacturing companies. So kind of a tier one company, a background company that connects, helps to connect bikes and scooters. Uh, but today we have already evolved into a vehicle design and manufacturing company ourselves. Mm. Um, as well as, you know, in Tallinn, we're also running a sharing fleet of the scooters. So it's a, basically an end consumer product or service company as well. Um, but if you compare us to, uh, I don't know, other scooter sharing companies, who, who else other than our focus is in like vehicle technology. So we're first and foremost 
vehicle builders and developers uh, and technology builders and then we build different business models or services on mm -hmm. top of that so I can't agree with you that Bolt is a manufacturing company. Uh, no, I should have said in part that they have. Uh, um, I mean, I don't even mm. agree with that. Okay. So, uh, so I guess, you know, if you would say that Apple is a manufacturing company, then I would agree with you. So mm. in that sense, you know, Apple doesn't produce any of the stuff they, they have. It's all done by subcontractors. So it's basically the same story with Bolt. Mm. Uh, they just have people sitting in these factories and overlooking the the, the production, mm -hmm. uh, but it's all produced, uh, you know, in Asia in in, in large uh, manufacturing plants. So we do everything in house. So we have our own factory in Estonia. Mm. So we're very we go very very deep into the the manufacturing side of that as well. Question: How did you know this light uh, vehicle market was going to take off? Because I have to say, it took me totally by surprise. Like I thought, I guess back in 2014 when you were working on this, like. Everyone was talking about like self-driving cars and, you know, ride sharing was becoming such a big thing. And, and then suddenly just in the last couple of years, started to see scooters appear everywhere. Uh, then people are buying their own private scooters as well. And it just totally, yeah, took me by surprise. How did you know this market trend was coming? Well, our background is actually building electric racing cars. So we've been involved into the automotive sector for a long time. That's mm. the whole mobility side. Um the first drive, first time I drove a fully electric racing car, I understood that, you know, it's completely over. Like there's zero future for internal combustion hmm. uh, because electric drive is so much more um, efficient, but it's also so much more fun. And from an engineering perspective, it's so much more simple. Um, so electrification was clear to me, I would say, 2012, 2013. Um, and then if you look further from there and you look all the global trends, you know, urbanization, global warming, electrification, IoT, and you put all these together, um, then you basically end up in a place of um, electrified, connected light mobility. It just mm. makes a lot of sense. So I think where we are operating is an area where all the macro or global trends are in favor of us. So mm. I've always said it to my team as well that if we fail, it was we could only blame ourselves mm. like like it's not like hey the industry wasn't on our side or or the market wasn't there uh, the market is clearly there and we were too early even i mean the, the fact that we haven't had a, a very explosive growth in the first years was just we were too early like like you also said it took you up by surprise we were about three four years early there in mm. the game um but i think it's um it's mainly driven by urbanization i mean you you pointed out autonomous cars or or ride hailing these don't um, reduce the number of cars. Uh, if you look at studies uh, and research done in San Francisco, for example, it clearly indicates that ride hailing has increased the number of uh, congestion. So ride hailing in this beautiful story, uh, you know, placed on the card that uh, there will be less cars. Uh, maybe less cars kind of what are owned, but at the same time, actually cars make more trips uh, because ride hailing is so convenient and it's still funded by VC money. So it's also very cheap. Mm -hmm. And in the end of the day, people do more rides with cars through ride hailing than they would do otherwise. So actually ride hailing as such doesn't solve any congestion problems. And I think autonomous cars will be even worse. Uh, a lot of people haven't thought about it, but... Um, uh, autonomous cars will dramatically reduce the price of ride hailing 
And so if you have a choice of mm. walking, taking a scooter or a bus or a ride hailing that's like half the price that it is today, you would most probably take ride hailing because it kind of feels very convenient and, and cheap. And then you will have even more cars. Or another example of what I've always pointed out, and I don't think people think about it, if you take your car to downtown and you go to the cinemas, for example, then often there's paid parking. And in Tallinn, it's quite expensive. So it's like, mm -hmm. I don't know, four euros per hour or something like that. If your movie lasts for two hours, it's almost eight euros for parking. Mm. If you would have your electric autonomous car driving around the block for two hours, it would cost you significantly less in the electricity cost for the car. Interesting. So it will cost you probably like 120, 150 for the electricity to the car to drive like 30 kilometers an hour for mm. two hours around the block. So where we're getting to is that having your car to drive for two hours is cheaper than it uh, for the car to park. Uh, or even a simpler example, you go to work in the morning and, uh, you know, from, from uh, outskirts uh, to the town town uh, and there's no parking. So you tell your car to go back home mm -hmm. and then you tell your car to come and pick you up in the evening. You have like double the traffic. So I think mm -hmm. autonomous cars are horrible uh, for like urban transportation. I think it's the worst thing that could happen, basically. Uh, I think autonomous cars uh, just are good for long distance travel and for the safety of long distance travel and the comfort. So, you know, you can, I don't know, play in your mobile phone while the car drives and most yeah. probably the car will make better decisions than you and you can't, you, it doesn't matter, it never gets tired and etc. But in like urban transportation, if there are no regulations, I think it will just explode. There will be a lot more cars on the, on the streets. It's interesting. I've never heard that perspective on um, autonomous cars before. No, no, but um, I mean, think about it. Yeah, it's like yeah. eight euros to park or 150 to mm. circumnavigate. I wonder if we're going to need a law that says kind of you can't run your car empty around the city. I, th I think the only thing that you could say is personally owned cars cannot ride empty. I mm. mean, that would kind of kill all these tricks. Yeah. But then it then you would say like hi why would you why would i need an autonomous car if i can't call it to myself like in night rider right mm. so i think it's uh, <laughs> it's super uh, kind of exciting technology it's still a long way to go um but I don't think that autonomous cars will do any good for congestion or urban mm. mobility. On the subject of predicting future trends, like I, I, I was watching Back to the Future 2 recently and, you know, everyone always complains about like, oh, we never did get these hoverboards. The future isn't as cool as they showed it to be. But like when I look around and see scooters everywhere, like they did kind of predict something similar. OK, they don't hover. But I think it's even more amazing that, yeah, we can just use an app to call them from anywhere. And so I think the future has worked out pretty OK in some ways no, i agree with you <laughs> if you look from a window and somebody goes by an electric scooter it kind of feels that they're hovering mm. so no no i think electric scooters are very very cool yeah um uh, christians so let's go back to the beginning like how how did you meet your co-founders uh, you met them at university did you what's the story there so we actually initially had five co-founders um and we all took part no actually four of us took part in a student um, challenge or competition called Formula Student. So this is where uh, university students build, design and build a racing car and then compete against other teams around the world. Mm. Um, I actually initially went to study in France. Uh, then I heard that there's a team like this in Estonia. I came back to Estonia, went to Taltech and then I joined the team and I ran the team for uh, a little over four years. Um, and I've always said that from like a physical perspective or stress perspective, 
building a startup is a child's play compared to building a racing car in eight mm. months. Um, and uh, yeah, my record was 52 hours awake uh, to achieve a deadline, for example. So uh, that was extremely cool. We, we competed all around Europe. We competed in US uh, twice. Uh, we became like top three team in the world uh, without having any automotive industry in Estonia. And then when we were building our electric car, um, we needed to fundraise that. Building an electric car was roughly twice as expensive as in a combustion car. Mm. Uh, and then we were looking for every kind of fundraising opportunity. And then just Prototron was launched. This is an Estonian kind of a fund where you can get money for your prototype ideas. Uh, and one of our guys was like, hey, I don't know, we need some money. There's something called Prototron. I said, what's it about? He said, I don't know, just start it. Okay, send it in. So we sent in to get money to build a racing car, uh, but it was actually turned out to be a business competition or like startup idea competition. And then they were like, hey guys, you got to top 25, send us your one pager. We're like, oh God, what is a one pager? You know, we Googled. <laughs> so we're like, okay, this is a one pager. Uh, so we did an overnight, sent in a one pager and then they come back and you know, we're all mechanical engineers. Mm -hmm. And then they come back like, oh my God, so cool. Yeah, you got to the next round, send us your business plan. Like, business plan like we don't want to do a business we just want money to build a racing car so we googled the business plan and did an overnight all nighter send it out and then they're like oh my god super exciting guys you got to do the final pitch like what is a pitch oh it's a presentation why didn't they tell us it's a presentation so anyway we we go in for, for the pitch and then uh, just an hour before we we build a prototype uh, so with the company was called formula battery management system and it was about building smart battery technology and so what we did we put some battery cells and some wires and the pcb board uh, electronics board and then we programmed the pcb board to flash green and red lights like after each other that was our prototype like on a on a on a cardboard uh, sheet and then we went in with that uh, or a plywood and then we went into the jury we did our pitch and the jury said um, your business pl plan is completely childish and ludicrous but you guys rock so we got 10,534 euros to build our business but we used it all to buy battery cells for the electric car and we built an electric car we went to the competition the only thing that didn't work was battery technology or the battery management system mm. so we basically blew the whole car or we burnt down the batteries um, so we got money to build a company but we built a racing car and then we went to competition and we toasted the racing car so we didn't have a company you we literally i mean yeah the batteries just like burnt down okay <laughs> um, and then uh, we didn't have a company we didn't have a racing car and we had to graduate so we didn't also have a job nor a, nor a school anymore and then one of the guys were like uh, we should do something. But hey, do you, do you remember we had this business plan? So we opened up the business plan. We're like, hey, that's not that bad of an idea. So that's how we found it, co-module basically. Uh, but quite quickly from the five people, we had three remaining. And uh, the third uh, or the, the final member that we didn't have yet, uh, him we found through Facebook because we got to another startup competition uh, in Barcelona and then we needed an app. So I write to Facebook, does no, somebody know how to do apps? And then one guy said, I do, a friend of a friend of mine. And then we met in a pub and then he joined us in the same evening. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, most of the guys met in the university. One guy joined later and, uh, and yeah, then we've been pushing forward. But we, it's, it's a funny story in the sense that 
we didn't feel a pain in the industry or we didn't come together with an idea that, hey, we need to fund the company. That was more like we wanted to build a racing car and ended up uh, building a company. And, and so fast forward to today, like how big is Co-Module now? Like how, how many employees do you have? We're and, 77 uh, people now. 77, wow. Yes, and uh, last year we did, uh, well, 16 million euros of revenue and uh, a bit over 1 million of profit. That's very impressive. Well, the profit part is impressive, yeah. right? For a startup. Mm, I, I, yeah. I apologize. I apologize. The next year, uh, we will try better. <laughs> and so how are things going this year? Um, and, and are you, I think I read you're planning to raise more funds. Is that? Uh, we are currently kind of semi-fundraising mode, yes. Um, we, we have a plan how to accelerate our vehicle business side. Um, we could do it also in kind of organic growth, but um, we're getting too old to do things organically. So uh, yeah, we were fundraising to, to grow the vehicle side. Mm, this year we're going to have less revenue because we had a massive drop uh, in the in the ride uh, sharing uh, world, mm. you know, because mm -hmm. countries were in lockdown. Um, but nevertheless, we have a lot of growth coming from the industry. So we call it industry side. That's where we sell the technology to companies who build bikes and scooters for end users. Mm. Um, so this side is growing very rapidly, whereas the ride hailing side was uh, dropping quickly. I see. So uh, Christian, let me uh, help me get my head around the whole business then. Kind of what is it that you make and what do you offer? So the main business of Comodule is building electronics that have a SIM card in there. And then putting this electronics into bikes and scooters. Uh, so there's this hardware component, actual mm. electronics units that we produce now ourselves in our own factory. Mm -hmm. You know, then on this electronics unit, you have a code. It's called firmware. And then um, if it sits into the vehicle, then it connects to the vehicle uh, subsystems, speaks the language of the vehicle, gathers the data from the vehicle, packages this data, then sends it to a server. Uh, this link is all managed by us. We also take the telecom contracts. Then this data is sent to the server, and then we kind of uh, unpack the data, manage the data, and give this over to our customer. So the company who builds uh, vehicles or the company who runs uh, a sharing system. So this is basically the product. We get money uh, for unit costs. So when we build, sell this uh, hardware unit, one-time fee and then we have a monthly fee for the service of the uh, moving the data and making sure that everything works so if you're in the startup world you can look at us like twilio uh but with a hardware component okay okay so it's the it's the hardware components it's the services that go with that um and what about the actual platforms the bikes and the scooters themselves you so most of you know the original business is that we supply technology to companies who build bikes and scooters. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is what Co-Module is about. Now, when we look at what Tool is doing, uh, which is our brand for end consumer, then there we are building our own electric scooter, mm -hmm. uh, soon coming out with an electric bike as well. Um, and these were actually built from the frustration of how badly electric scooters were built mm -hmm. in the first two or three years of the service. Um, and there we are moving into a vehicle uh, company ourselves. We're not competing with our current customers because these vehicles are uh, at the moment solely built for kind of sharing uh, purposes mainly and the scooter maybe also for end consumer. But yeah, the core business is IoT uh, for, 
for vehicle manufacturers. And to what extent do you have to tailor these services and products to each kind of That is a very company? good question. That is a very good question. Um, I think that is the biggest challenge uh, in, in what we do, that it's actually very difficult to be a sole product company. Mm. So in the sense that we have... Everyone wants something different. Everyone wants something different. Mm. So it's going, um, you know, it's... Um, Maybe it's uh, to explain to the listeners, it's something like, you know, Nortal or these guys do. They have these core specifics, for example, in EE governance. Uh, they have this uh, base uh, knowledge and then they kind of tailor make it a little bit for every customer. It's not that bad for us. You know, the, the hardware component is, is usually the same. But yes, you have to write a little bit specific code for every, every customer you have. Uh, but this is also, on the other hand, it's a great moat or a great um, uh, entry barrier for, for your competition. So, for example, uh, one of our customers is Pond Bike Group, which is the Europe's largest e-bike manufacturing company. They do more than a half a million e-bikes per year. Uh, and we are now completely kind of embedded into their bikes, which means that it would take a couple of years for anybody else to, to start competing with us there. So basically, once you're in, in you're, you're in there, and you you have a very steady uh, cash flow coming from there. Mm. So seventy-seven employees. How are they split between like engineers and and other business kind of development functions? Engineering is around sixty percent. So we're super okay. engineering heavy company. Yeah. Uh, I'm very proud of that. <laughs> so uh, we're first and foremost uh, about innovation and engineering and being on the on the edge of technology. Uh, it must be difficult to find the talent you need for that. Uh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the funny thing is that as we don't build only web-based services, uh, you know, we're much more in the hardware, firmware, uh, mechanical game. Um, then the people we hire come from ABB, Ericsson, you know, these mm. large uh, industrial companies. And... Um, it's relatively easy to attract people, you know, from a large factory on the outskirts of Tallinn to a uh, old town office. And most importantly, to the fact that these people clearly see what is the result of their work. Mm. So for us, actually having, you know, electronics or firmware engineers, it's not that uh, difficult. And the other aspect is that um, people really care about what we do. Uh, it's a massive effect, I would say. 80% of people who join us now, they say that they join us because of our mission. And our mission is to make the world a better place, uh, you know, through uh, cleaner mo modes of transport. And uh, yeah, people really care. I mean, mm. it's a, I know Sandra in the last episode uh, covered this as well, that, uh, that for Bolt, it's a very uh, good kind of hiring, um, uh, how to say, ad that they're, they're uh, sustainable. Um, and I think it, it really works. Uh, people really care where they work and what they do. And you do this manufacturing in Estonia. Um, <laughs> I guess my question just is why. Um, I, I guess uh, people don't necessarily associate Estonia very much with manufacturing. Although, like, if you travel around the kind of periphery of Tallinn and Tartu, you do start to see a, a surprisingly large number of kind of light manufacturing facilities, I guess, making components. Yeah, Estonia uh, is really, really strong, actually, in electronics manufacturing. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't know, but the world's largest factory of Ericsson is in Tallinn. Really? Huh. So, like, Tallinn is one of the hotspots in the world to make 5G routers. 
So basically, uh, yeah, that's, there's a lot of electronics manufacturing. Electronics manufacturing is just interesting because it's completely clean. Like, you know, there's no uh, emission pipes uh, and and it's quiet and etc. So it kind of just blends in. You don't even notice it. Uh, from mm. the outskirts you can, or from outside, you can look, oh, it's just a warehouse building. Yeah. Actually, they make some uh, super high-tech stuff. Um, the, but you, your question was why? So when, when we told that we're going to build an electric scooter, um, over kind of the one and a half years when we were developing it, whoever I met, absolutely zero, like nobody told me it's a good idea. Mm. I, I think I talked with more than 100 people. Everybody told me it's a bad idea because it's done in China, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even my mom didn't say it's a good idea. <laughs> so, uh, but, the, you know, the thing with entrepreneurs is that if you tell them it can't be done, it actually gives them more power. Mm. Um, I think... A lot of people uh, in the Western, you know, in Europe and in US, but mostly even in US, have have a very weird look at the world. Uh, and I think especially in the startup industry where it's always been about software and SaaS and data, and we completely kind of detach ourselves from the actual world. We kind of forget that, you know, the cars actually have to be made somewhere or the, mm. it's cool to do a ride hailing company, but where do you get the car from? Or, or it's cool to do a scooter sharing company, where do you get the scooters from? Or, okay, you have an app, but where does it run on? It needs a mobile phone for that. And, and somehow we have this impression that, that software is where the high growth and the value and all the money is. Um, but you forget to look at China. I mean, China has never had an exporting software company. Like, never. I mean, Alibaba is like maybe now close there. Now they have TikTok, right? But before that, they've never had anything. They've only produced things. And China has become one of the strongest countries in the world. So, you know, there's some logic. <laughs> there is some value in building uh, real products. Um, and I think the problem is that Chinese, you know, government uh, marketing agencies and the companies, they have really done good job with kind of programming our minds to an extent where we really say, oh, it cannot be done because it's done in China. But never, nobody never really does the math. They don't look into the details of it. They mostly never have been in China in these factories. So we've done it all and we just did the math and we're like, hey, it makes a lot of sense to produce in Estonia. Um, it's not more expensive to produce in Estonia if we get to scale. Really? Yeah. Uh, and finally, the vertical integration aspect is just a killer. I mean, it's like, for example, now we run this tool scooter sharing in Tallinn. We put something out. We get feedback from the customer at the same night or in the next morning. Uh, we implement these design ideas to the team in like three or four days, we get new parts. So basically we can make product iterations in a week and put them back on the street. And it's mind blowing. I mean, in China, if you buy something from China, you can do that maybe in six months. So it's like one week compared to what's uh, six times four, 24, you know, it's like 24 time uh, uh, difference. So I believe the whole world will go so, so much more back to vertical integration. So that the same company offers the service and builds the product. Uh, you know, you can look at Apple, like world champion vertical integration, although they don't manufacture themselves, but they control the whole manufacturing system. They design the product, they do the software and they do the services. Super mm. successful company. If you look at Tesla, who's becoming number one company in the world, completely vertically integrated. So I think the world is moving towards vertical integration. Uh, and the mindset that software is all is, is something that probably was 
the hype from 2000 to 2020. And I think from 2020 to 40, we're more being to vertical integration and production. Interesting. I, I'm just realizing what a bubble I live in because I'm always surrounded by kind of people in digital services. And I just, I don't think enough about manufacturing, um, including here in Estonia. Um, I did actually see in the news yesterday, like exports for goods of Estonian origin are up 15% kind of last month compared on a year. Like even with all the challenges of a pandemic, like there's, there is a lot of amazing things happening here. But actually pandemic is an opportunity for us. I mean, what pandemic did was it started to you know, people started to think, hey, does it make sense that I rely 100% on, on, on China, right? Mm. I mean, even the mask situation, you know, what happened? We need masks. Oh, but nobody can make them. They only make them in China. <laughs> so so that, you know, there, there, there's a lot of even like strategically important things we need to move back. Uh, pandemic gave a big uh, uh, impact also in Estonia electronics manufacturing. So in Estonia, we have a lot of, you know, like... Um, um, what you call it, the service uh, electronic manufacturing service companies who build electronics for other companies uh, and all of these companies have had a massive rise in their orders so you know uh, european and nordic companies who used to b- produce in china they're also bringing that back to europe uh, because it's too risky to put everything in one card so mm. i think uh, it's, it's clearly moving back uh, but the next step from having things m- produced for you is actually producing them yourself so Christian, you're the Elon Musk of light electric, uh, of, of light vehicles. You're, um... This I wouldn't say, but uh, you can call co-module as the future uh, Tesla of light electric vehicles. Yes. Okay. But even in respect of like, yeah, you want, you don't want to outsource things abroad. You, you want to, yeah, do vertical integration. Really interesting. You've talked a bit about sustainability. Um, what, what makes your manufacturing processes sustainable? How is that improving? Well, that comes really from the core for us. The, the number one reason why we built our own scooter was because we saw how badly the uh, Chinese scooters were done. Uh, you know, at one moment we were connecting more than 100,000 scooters globally. Uh, so we had data coming in. We saw what it was their actual lifetime and etc. Mm. We were far deeper in it than, you know, media. Um, and... Because something's not environmentally friendly. If it, if it takes loads of like environmental costs to make, then you have to replace it and make another one. Kind of Absolutely. I mean, in sustainability is first and foremost about uh, lifetime. Hmm. So it doesn't matter that much of uh, exactly what you put in. It matters very much on how long does it last. Hmm. I mean, I have, I have a colleague who has a 100-year-old bicycle, right? A bicycle is built to last 100 years hmm. uh, if you maintain it correctly. A car whether it's a Dodge or it's a Porsche lasts minimum 15 years, you know, usually like 20 years. And then you had this scooter segment that just lasted for, I don't know, a few months, you know, completely ridiculous. And the only reason why it lasted for a few months was because it's badly done. So that was where, you know, really our core came. But when we look at how we make our scooter, it's really designed from ground up to be sustainable. Uh, we guarantee a long lifetime. Uh, minimum five years on the street in sharing, but in ownership, 10 plus years for sure. Um, but for example, a lot of companies talk about um, recyclability in end of life. But for us, it's completely next level in the sense that we already use more than 40% of recycled material when we make the scooter. Mm. So we already use recycled material to make it. Um, and then it's 100% recyclable end of life. 
and and we really go deep. I mean, for example, uh, if you bring in aluminum, then uh, we did a very in detail study. If you buy aluminum in Europe, uh, the carbon footprint of a kilogram of aluminum in Europe is around 27 times less than the carbon footprint of aluminum in China. And there's two reasons for that. So, so basically, you can make the same product from the same material, but your carbon footprint difference is 27 times. Mm. Uh, and the reason for that is that all of the aluminum uh, we use is re- already recycled. It's collected from the European market and then it's, uh, you know, uh, smelted again and put in together in uh, Norway using only hydro energy. Uh, when you take aluminum in China, it comes from uh, the earth because everything is made in China and then shipped out. And then it's melted using uh, electricity from coal because that's where a large majority of electricity comes from in China. So it's, I think if you want to build a sustainable product, it's really going down to your whole supply, ch- supply chain and then understanding how it's built. So. If somebody says we make it from aluminum and aluminum is very recyclable, true, but it also depends on where does this aluminum come from. Uh, and it turns out to be a 27 times difference where it comes from. So it's it's very detailed. In, in manufacturing, it goes very detailed. You have to go very deep. Uh, I think in software, it's quite easy. You say, hey, I use five gigabytes of uh, data and now I buy it from Amazon and I put a tick there that it's sustainable and now I feel good. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm carbon neutral. Um, but reality, the most carbon comes from you know physical products, and that the fact that we actually move, uh, and you have to go much much deeper in there, and that's you know our main mission to do that. Interesting, because I guess like a few years ago, you could get away with that kind of uh, greenwashing. Oh, but greenwashing like, is. But people are getting much smarter. Like legislation is coming, and it, this pandemic crisis is going to be over, but the environmental crisis is still going to be around. People are thinking more and more about kind of carbon imprints. Now, I mean, greenwashing is something that I'm um, I've taken as a as a mission to fight against mm. uh, i think it's uh, it's an obligation for everybody of us who are in this and who understand it to constantly educate people around us um, i mean i can bring you a, one of the craziest examples of greenwashing lately is when american uh, airline company delta said that <laughs> they're going to be carbon neutral i don't remember in 10 years or something like an airline company cannot be carbon neutral. It's just mm. like impossible. Like it's a bloody airline. Mm. It burns fuel when it flies. Mm. You know, it's it's like impossible. Like the only way that they could say is that hey, we we offset it. But this is just immense. Uh, uh, you know. Um, quantity to offset it's just yeah. not going to work so there there's there's a lot of companies saying that they will be and there's a very big difference whether you are or you will be and i think this is the main thing that people should always look into if somebody promises to do something in the future that means that they haven't done check shit uh, at the moment mm-hmm. so always look at companies who are actually doing something Okay. Uh, question, can you give us an idea of like how far around the world your products and services are in operation right now? Like how, how many? So we have connected more than 300,000 electric vehicles 300, in more than 46 different countries. Uh, so we go from North America, South America. We are in uh, South Africa. We're all around Europe. We're in Japan, Australia, New Zealand, in India. Uh, we had something going on in South Korea. So uh, quite a global footprint. 
it's a big chunk of the global market then for light vehicles. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, as I said, you know, Pond Bike, world's second largest manufacturer, biggest in Europe. Uh, we have a joint product coming out with Shimano, which is a, you know, the company in bike industry like Bosch in automotive. So when you look at connecting bikes and scooters to the internet, we're clearly the world leader in what we do, mm. uh, kind of embedded into the industry very deeply. Um, and so we see that we're making uh, you know, great progress there. Uh, but the whole thing of building our own vehicle, I think the motivation there was that like, we are there, but we still see there's so much to do and the industry is still too slow. So we're, we, we, we said that we want to be in the driving seat ourselves as well and push the industry further even more. Um, I think very similar motivation like when, when uh, Tesla was started. Like they basically said that they have this strong belief that the electric car is the best thing for the humankind and it will win. And in, if a lot of people don't remember that, but when Tesla started, he actually did a joint uh, deal with Mercedes-Benz or Daimler where they supply technology to Daimler. So the initial plan of Tesla was to build just like demo vehicles, like really cool vehicles to show the capability of technology and then sell technology to other automakers. So Tesla didn't plan to become an automaker in the beginning. But then they saw that, hey, you know, they have the cool technology that Daimler is just so slow in implementing it. And from this frustration, they decided like, heck it, we're going to just build a big uh, automotive company ourselves. I think we're in a little bit of a similar position. We've provided technology to others now for five, six years, but we see that there's still so much to do. And that's why we're kind of stepping up and, and building our own vehicles. And... Um so you know localization can be pretty tricky for startups like there's always not just for kind of like cultural and market reasons but also for issues of legal compliance um but i guess that's relatively simple when it comes to digital services compared to actually making hardware like how do you know that you're how do you get your head around like why your components are kind of legally compliant in all the different countries you're sending them to that's a very good question so we have to certify our uh, iot products in every market we go to so you have one certification for Europe, you have FCC for US, you mm. have different certifications in South America and Australia and Japan and etc. Uh, and there's a process what you have to go through. Uh, when we had one customer uh, launching in Brazil, we needed to get certifications really, really fast and Brazil was super slow. So what ended up was that one of our engineers flew to Brazil and sat in the certification laboratory for two weeks for them to get this through. Hmm. Um, so yes, you always have a background where you have to do things to actually launch your products. So in that sense, again, um, you can say that it's not that easily scalable. But at the other th side, um, it's extremely, uh, you know, there's, a, there's not many people in the world who can do that. So once you get certified and once you, you are uh, legal in whichever country, it's very difficult for others to follow. Um, so yeah, there is this challenge, but we're really on top of that game. And we've gone through that with all of our IoT products. So when we look at the vehicle, it's actually easy for us to do. We don't see any hurdles there. Mm. And so we talked about the way Tesla's plans changed. Kind of like, yeah, how else have your plans changed? And kind of what, what are you thinking about in the future? I think in the future, we will be a massively large end-user uh, light vehicle company. So we will build a vehicle brand ourselves and sell them directly to end users. 
we have a plan how to reach a billion euros of revenue. Mm. I worked on the plan for the past six months, and today I'm super confident that we will do it. Uh, it's just a question of what's the time, how long does it take to, to reach that uh, milestone. Uh, if you just look at you know, the market size and where the world is moving, then we're very confident we can achieve that. So yeah, we're going to be a vehicle company selling directly to end consumer. And what we do today on the B2B side, that will still be there, but I think it will be like slowly fading out. Mm. So your business plan writing skills have improved a lot since your uh, formula uh, racing car days. Um, I, I don't know, I wouldn't say that, I guess, but at least uh, we're modeling things a, a lot better now, yes, or at mm. least we're doing it, um, but I still don't write business plans. I, okay. I, I, I enjoy building products. And I, I've asked a lot about the hardware, but like in terms of software, it kind of what do people want uh, to come with? Yeah, what do they want in the software? Yeah, I, I mean, when we talk about a vehicle, you know, vehicle is uh, it is metal and it's pieces and you know it's 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 how it puts together. But a lot of it today, the vehicle itself creates value, but the services and the software you put on creates the most value. I would mm. even say. So, for example. Um, if you buy a Xiaomi or a Chinese scooter, um, it's it's more of a toy. But the biggest problem, I think, is that you can never leave it anywhere because whoever can turn it on and drive away with it. Um, very simple thing for us to do is, um, you know, Bluetooth lock-unlock and Bluetooth proximity. So our scooter, basically, the moment you walk to it, it turns on automatically. The moment you walk away from it, it turns off automatically. Mm -hmm. Somebody tries to steal it. Uh, uh, the motor is blocked you can't even push it with your with your leg you can never turn it on and etc so if you have this vertical integration you can build in things that are really really cool but in the end of the day they don't you know increase the price because it's basically software only the scooters we sell today they also have a fully integrated uh, insurance offering with it so even if something happens with a scooter it gets stolen it's covered by the insurance so you know the product will not be hardware only the product is a combination of hardware software and services you build on top of that and i think this is how the whole um kind of consumer space is changing you know it's not going to be i just bought something it's a, about i bought something but i also want to make sure that it always works and it has services attached to it mm. you know i was actually riding a scooter the other day and i rode it into talon's old town and the top speed like immediately just suddenly dropped down as soon as i crossed that kind of invisible border and i thought that's really clever like i guess there are yeah new kind of new uh, software updates coming all the time yeah and this is this is actually a requirement by the city so that's mm. why it happens but how does your revenue split between like hardware and software? So when we look at last year, then uh, roughly 50-50, 50% is, is okay. what comes from the hardware sales and the 50 is, is pure gross margin from the from the service. So it's not like one subsidizing the other, like you're really committed to both. And Yeah, yeah. Mm, okay. And, and I think, you know, I think, yeah, it's it's so difficult with the startup uh, people, right? It's like everybody's always like, oh, okay, you know, hardware. So I guess um, the hardware is just the enabler for mm. the software and the software is where you will see the growth and et cetera. I mean, honestly, no. Uh, what we see our growth in is the vehicle, is the production. And we see software as a, you know, complement on top of it. Uh, mm. Kind of a, a feature of the whole product is that it also has good software. For, for us, you know, for many companies, hardware is like um, 
you know, the base to build software on. I think for us, it's the, 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 like a little bit of the other way around. Mm. Software is just like something that you put on top of it to make it work, but uh, hardware is a very important part of it. And I think um, I think I'm early. Uh, you know, it's 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 actually quite difficult to find people who believe in that. Um, uh, especially in the kind of venture capital side, because they always they, they're used to looking at B two B SaaS companies. Uh, I'm sure that a couple of years from now, uh, when we have grown significantly and, and people understand how big of a moat we have built, uh, they will uh, they will understand us differently. Um, and I mean, I think Tesla and Apple are like the prime examples of of hardware, right? Why people buy Apple's products is first and foremost about how well the hardware and software work together. And uh, why people buy Tesla's products is first and foremost because they have the longest range and they are really good cars. Mm-hmm. And then about the fact that there's software updates and there's a mobile phone app and etc. right? You know, all BMWs now also have a mobile phone app. So it's really about putting these things to, to together. It's not about, I just have some hardware and then I build software on top of it. Would, would you ever be interested in selling your bikes and scooters directly to the public? Or? Correct, we already do that. Oh, really? If ah. you go to tuul.xyz, uh, then there's a link where you can buy it. Okay. It's, ah. very, it's very low-key. Uh, we will go big in the, in the spring, uh, but we have already sold uh, in Estonia, so you have people riding around your personal scooters in Estonia. Okay, I, I wasn't expecting that. I will definitely go check that out. T-U-U-L.xyz. Okay. So basically, that's what I say. I think like five or 10 years from there, from now, we are an end consumer brand. Mm, okay. Super bloody exciting. I actually, I think the only end consumer brand you have in Estonia and startup world is Bolt, right? Basically, all the others are like B2B or in the background. Transfervice like semi, uh, but most of them are in the background. Mm. Uh, we've been in the background uh, as well. Uh, it's, uh, for me, it's super exciting to be in the end consumer side. Uh, it's especially if you're like in enterprise, like we, like your customers are large companies. You know, for, you know, pipe drive. Their customers are basically the people who work in companies. But for most Estonian startups, your customers are large companies. You know, like I don't know yeah. Walmart or Uber or whoever. Uh, and for me now, retrospectively, I understand that this has been a pain for me personally because it's just a long sales cycle and, and it takes you three or four years and there's a lot of lunches and dinners and big contracts. The actual live feedback you get from a consumer product is like super cool. Uh, I really, really like it. And I urge a lot of Estonian companies to build more consumer businesses uh, because end of the day, the consumer businesses are the businesses that are on the stock market and then they are feeded in by the, most of the B2B companies. So consumer businesses are the businesses that in the end are the biggest. Um, I really urge people to do more consumer businesses. Uh, I also give you a disclaimer that it's going to be super difficult to raise money, especially in Estonia, mm. because all Estonian VC funds uh, or, or angels, they're like, hey, we invest in P2B companies. So we have a lot of this mindset, you know, even on, in the early beginning of Estonia, we were subcontract manufacturing, you know, in the Soviet times, we were subcontract manufacturing for the Soviets. We've never really had in consumer brands. Uh, but we have to move there. I mean, that's how you get to the top of the food chain. Mm. And uh, and it's super exciting. Just that's something that I want to tell everybody. So it's not like a side project and it's not just like a way of marketing the kind of where the bigger revenue comes from, um, from selling kind of bulk orders to other companies. Like you, you, you believe that this is like a huge viable part of the business as well. Well, for me in the last one and a half years, that's the, 
80% of my focus. Really? Wow. So we the B2B side is, is functional. We have people who do a really good job there. Uh, we're really deep into the business. You know, it's going very well. Um, but it's not going like explosive hyper growth. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's going well 50% growth year per year, something like that. Um, uh, and we could be happy with it. I mean, we could be, I mean, we had one and a half million euros of profit last year. I think we could get to, to very nice profits and, and good growth company, but I think, uh, we're too young to do that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we, we want to have a bigger impact and we want to change, uh, we want to change the world. Uh, and I think by building our own large scale vehicle production in Estonia, uh, this would be something significantly more exciting to do than 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 stay where we are so for now it's the scooters and possibly in future the bikes as well for yes sale. and then maybe mopeds and then maybe motorcycles uh so there is a lot to do in the light vehicle sector and, and what's the price tag uh the scooter currently goes for 1500 euros okay mm-hmm. and you get um you get a lot for that. Yeah. I, I'm not too sure how that compares to the rest of the market, but I guess it's on the premium end. Correct. So basically, um, what is very interesting with scooters, I'll give you two interesting facts. Mm. Uh, one of them is that in every category, you have cheap and then you have premium. You know, you can buy a 200 euro smartphone and you can buy a 1,500 euro uh, iPhone. Mm-hmm. You can buy a Dodge or you can buy a Porsche. Right. Uh, but in cars, but in scooters, you can buy a 600 euro scooter or like a seven nine hundred euro scooter, and they're both crap. One is just a little less crap. Yeah. But the reason why there's no kind of differentiation is because the product is only like two years old for the world. So I'm sure that this will also get into different categories, and we will also get into different categories. So this is our starting point: something ultra durable that lives on the street, swappable batteries, completely unstealable, uh, really really good product built to last. But we will also go into different segments, even maybe higher premium and then also a lower, uh, lower price, a lower incoming, but, uh, but maybe uh, less features. So this, this will uh, de- evolve over, over the time. Mm. And the second thing maybe that uh, I want to point out that is, I think, again, very interesting. People don't think about it. Uh, we all talk about scooter sharing uh, because it's like really in the news. At the same time, scooter sharing as such is 20 times smaller than scooter ownership already in Europe today. Uh, in Estonia, they sell around 8,000 scooters. And in Tallinn, what you have operating is around 2,000 scooters. Uh, and these will not be replaced every year. Uh, so every year they sell 8,000, there's only 2,000. In Europe, you have around 200,000 scooters mm-hmm. in sharing and you sell around 2 million per year. So uh, actually, ownership is much bigger. So all of, you know, bolts or birds or, uh, or even tools sharing, they, they're all about replacing the taxi, right? It's, it's about replacing the taxi. But there's this huge world of ownership, um, you know, owning their own scooter. And I think if you use it on a daily basis, you want to own it. You're like You want to be relying on it that's always there and you can go from A to B. And, and there's a very simple you know logic you can do there how many cars on the streets are taxis or ride hailing and how many cars are privately owned mm. so and that also gives you this perspective how much there is to do to actually sell light electric vehicles to to people mm. and the running costs i guess are much lower than uh owning your own car uh there's basically no running costs mm-hmm. like uh, we've seen it from operating our scooters as well that the electricity that goes in there you know you're talking about i don't know five to ten euros per per per, per month it's just basically non-existent when you compare it to a car. Yeah. Uh, 
because you know at first 1500 seems a lot but actually like uh, i i remember living in london and the amount i used to spend like just on like a bus pass two pass per month was incredible um i guess the only drawback in places like london is the regulations are quite slow uh to catch up i i think at present scooters still aren't legal they're illegal yes they will be legal from january already okay okay do you keep an eye on regulations around the world and like how do you, how can you help influence those absolutely um scooters are being legislated all around uh, europe by now uh, uk is the last one actually no holland is the last one or, or netherlands they they still ban them um um everywhere else they're they're now legal um but i think what is even more interesting from the legislative side is how the governments are you know, pushing or, or um, uh, helping people to converge. So you have in many places, you have a government subsidies when you buy an electric vehicle. Uh, you know, in Lithuania, for example, they had this cool campaign. If you give in your old car, you get 1,000 euros to buy an e-bike or an e-scooter. Mm, interesting. In Paris, they give you, I think, 500 euros to buy an e-bike or an e-scooter. So, you know, it's, it's so simple math that riding and light electric vehicle is so significantly better for the society that the governments are also pushing for that. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to give a thousand euros to buy an e-bike compared to giving, I don't know, five or ten thousand euros to buy a car, an e-car, mm. electric car, that doesn't actually solve the problem of the city. So um, this is, I think, the more interesting side. And what I see in the future, I think there will be a pan-European setup how to how to help people buy electric vehicles mm-hmm. because today it's very scattered among countries it's very complicated um but i think it will converge into a pan-european setup mm. and i guess one of the good things about being in estonia is that things can be kind of tested and laws can be changed on relatively quickly uh, and then the main reason for us to have this sharing system in tallinn is to test whatever we whatever we build so mm-hmm. this is this is epic you know it's it's almost it's almost taking vehicle or hardware engineering and manufacture to the same level of code you know if you have code you deploy go to an app mm. and you find the bug you fix it then you deploy and it's fixed right it, i don't know 24 hours everything can be fixed uh, in hardware it's usually six months in cars it's eight years <laughs> mm. for us it's now also like two weeks because we deploy them on the street we find something out and we take them back and, and we've already made changes so this is the main reason of, uh, of why we do a sharing what happened to the bike sharing market like i remember even in Tallinn, i remember seeing bikes start to appear then they disappeared and i kind of i guess around the world they've really been replaced by scooters we talk so much about scooters but what's going on with like yeah bike sharing and the e-bike market that's a good question so bike sharing station-based bike sharing uh owned by cities is something that is around 21 years old in europe uh, started in lyon france You have hundreds of thousands of mechanical station-based bikes in Europe that are very often subsidized by the the cities. What is happening is that most of these bikes are being turned electric, like in Tartu, for example, in Estonia. And these are very popular. So I actually predict that all of the scooter-sharing haze that we have going on most probably will be commoditized and owned by the government in the next five years or so. Mm. I think it's going to be extremely difficult for these companies because public transport is mostly owned by the city uh, in Europe. You know, metros, buses, trains, 
bike sharing for the last 20 years, and now you have the scooter sharing that's kind of privatized. Um, you know, there's two options, whether everything will move towards privatization and cities will, will subsidize it, or the other option, which is the reality today, is that actually everything will be semi, you know, uh, publicly owned. Mm. And I think that's a higher chance where the scooter sharing is going. If you look at Paris, if you look at UK, they already do these kind of tenders where they give out licenses for the scooter sharing companies to operate. I think the next step is that they're not going to give license. They will give out like a like a proper tender where you operate the scooters, but it has a city brand on it and it's actually owned by the city, basically. Mm. So in that sense, I think from the startup mindset, this is not going to be a very good market for startups to operate because their growth will be limited by city regulations. Really interesting. Um, so it'll be, yeah like trains or buses kind of different models for how the state kind of controls the market and um and i mean if you think about it even today why scooter sharing is a difficult thing to do is because you're competing with uh, public transport mm. and public transport is subsidized mm. uh, especially in tallinn where public transport is free yeah so uh, <laughs> uh, you know you also pointed out london how much money you spent on a pass for the public transport here it's free so you 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 really have to build a very good service for people to ride Interesting. Um, what kind of services? So to the ride um, kind of ride sharing apps, kind of what services do you have to provide them after delivering the product as well? We talked about kind of hardware, software, the platform, but what kind of ongoing care do you have to provide? So our job is that the vehicles are always online, the data flows and you can always send commands to them. So we don't usually build the front-end app or, or, or the data analytics for their uh, rides, but uh, we are kind of the infrastructure or the pipeline. Uh, so we take care that everything is online. Uh, we get fee for that. And if something fails, it's our responsibility. Uh, for example, we had a failure in Poland uh, more than a year ago where uh, around 5,000 units went offline in one hour. Mm. Uh, and we basically had three cars going from Tallinn to, to Poland to, uh, to swap all these units. And later it turned out that the Polish weather, National Weather uh, Institute had sent an SMS message to all SIM cards in Poland saying that there will be a thunderstorm, don't go under a tree. Uh, and this message was with Polish characters, which meant that it was like 12 SMSs long. And we had made a small bug in our code that couldn't ah. read that long messages. And so all of our units failed. So basically, that was our responsibility. We swapped them and then we paid for the lost uh, damages also for the for the customer. Okay. And um, I think I read that your company was originally established in Germany. And but you have a, an Estonian company as well. What's your future plans for that? Yeah, we actually moved to Berlin when we started. So we lived more than two years in Berlin in the beginning. Um, the plan is actually to bring HQ to Estonia. So uh, I think Bolt has done an extremely good job in there in, in telling to the to the VC world as well that uh, you know invest in a in a legal entity in Estonia. We want to do the same. Um, we can legally do it from uh, from the second part of next year. So probably 2022 beginning will be an Estonian company. Okay, fantastic. Can you bring in manufacturing to... I mean, your, your business is in Estonia already, I guess. Yeah, yeah, just absolutely. The legal aspect, the, only the holding mm. is in Germany. And uh, like we don't win anything from it. And the only thing we lose is that we have to we have to do like more bookkeeping uh, for it. And it's kind of just 
tedious. So that's why we want to bring it back. And you've mentioned a bit about how the pandemic is affecting your business. Kind of how how has it been for your company, for your employees? And for us, uh, we lost uh, like seventy percent of our monthly reoccurring revenue in. Uh, if over like a two month period, uh, and then we lost our biggest customer with a three hour notice period. So uh, our biggest customer was jumped by Uber, Uber subsidy. And uh, we got an email from a guy saying, hey, I think it's my last day. And then two and a half hours later, there was a press statement that the whole company shut down. So for us, it was you know very sudden and very harsh. Uh, at the same time, what has uh, kind of been interesting is that the pandemic has pushed people more to privately owned vehicles. So the part of uh, industry for us where people build vehicles for, for people, this ha has been sold out. So this is in a very good growth. Mm. Um, but the sharing part you know, dropped very quickly. So it's a weird situation where in short term, it's super difficult. But at the same time, you see that mid and long term, it's actually good for your business. Mm. So it's more of about uh, a cash flow problem rather than an actual um, fundamental problem for the business. Interesting. Yeah, from my perspective as well, like I've been, I guess I've been using ride sharing slightly less because I've had less places to go to. But then for kind of uh, scooters, like I've been using them so much more because I'd rather just jump on a scooter than jump onto a busy bus. Yeah. And I think, but, but what is interesting is that, you know, public space or a private space got a new meaning. So everybody's like, hey, it's going to be very good for scooters uh, because everybody's going to ride and nobody wants to be in public transport. Mm. But actually, these high peaks of, of cases or these lockdown moments have been really, really bad still. Uh, because yes, people would use scooters, but people just don't go anywhere. So it's an interesting, it's very yeah. interesting mix, mm. you know, uh, that yes, you are the best way to move. Um, but if nobody moves, then it's difficult for a mobility company. So I think actually for all of those ride hailing and scooter sharing companies, it's been a very difficult time. Uh, because just from like one day, nobody moved and they were not allowed to move. They got a fine when they went outside. And now we're going back to it. You know, in France, Germany, you already have the same rules applied uh, in Belgium as well. So people can't move. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of these rights drop very, very quickly. Mm. You know, in the first episode of this season, we had uh, Rain Ranu, as I mentioned, and he was talking about how the pandemic is going to come to an end in you know a couple of years. And we really need to be preparing now for the world afterwards when things go, maybe not back to normal but at least you know the pandemic is going to be over and we, we've got to move on from there with what we've learned and i've got to be honest like i actually found it a little bit difficult to believe all that time ago when we recorded the first episode because the world looked like a much darker place now then um but now kind of we've just had the news about like um uh great progress of a vaccine and you really do feel that there's light at the end of the tunnel and startups really need to be thinking about what happens when lockdowns end when we can when social distancing can end and and hopefully that day is going to come sooner than later even if uh it's not going to be in the near future um, so you're thinking about the future. You've got your plan to get to uh, 1 billion euros in revenue. Can you give us a few insights into, uh, without, without giving away too many secrets, kind of uh, what you're going to be mostly focusing on? So the 1 billion euro of revenue will come from selling roughly half a million vehicles per year uh, to end consumers and other operators. So that's in short where we're going. Um, we will be building the vehicles ourselves uh, in Estonia in our own uh, manufacturing. It's going to be a lot about uh, the product 
but as well as about uh, industrial innovation, you know, how to build products uh, with the least uh, impact and, and time consumed. Um, in the manufacturing, there's one of these coolest, um, uh, how to say, um, ideas is called lights out manufacturing. So when you're in manufacturing, your goal is always that you can, uh, you know, close the lights or turn off the lights in the factory because there's nobody there. So, mm -hmm. and everything will still be done. So this is the level of automation you're always uh, dreaming of. Uh, but yes, it's going to be building vehicles in Europe, mostly for Europe, for an explosively growing market um, and, and solving the urban mobility problem through that. Mm. On that note, Christian, thank you so much for giving up your time. And uh, so it's T-U-U-L dot, dot X Y Z if you want to check out uh, how to buy your own. Thank you so much. I've learned so much. Like I've really, it, this has brought me out of my bubble because I'm always thinking in digital services and I've just completely overlooked like all the awesome manufacturing work that's going on here too. But you know, it's all integrated as well. It's yeah. Um, thank you so much. So yeah, this is the sixth episode, and I want to say a huge thank you to all the guests uh, we've had this season uh, who shared really valuable advice. As I mentioned, we had uh, film director and angel investor Rain Ranu um, from Super Angel in California. Uh, he previously founded Fortumo. Um, so he talked to us about how to craft a compelling company story. We've had Carolee Hendricks, who founded Jobatical, and talked about how to pivot a business. Uh, she made the very tough decision to say goodbye to half a million users that they had built up. And yet the company is in a much stronger position now. So that was a really interesting story. Tavi Tamkivi from Salve talked to us about how to avoid the mistakes of first-time founders. You know, Tavi helped build Skype and TransferWise, two hugely successful Estonian startups, uh, before creating Salve as a first-time founder to scale up his financial crime-fighting service. We had Sandra Sarav, who we've mentioned a few times in this episode, who joined us from Bolt. Um, and she told us how to help save the planet while still making a profit. And we talked about greenwashing and how to actually do kind of real, uh, you know, real work to help save the environment. So that's really interesting to listen to. Uh, in the last episode, Lelia Rohuma and Jorgen Matsi from Pipedrive came to talk to us about something very, very important, which is how to take care of your mental health of both you and your team while building a startup. And I think even just like talking about those issues openly is really important, but they also had so much great expertise to share. Um, and finally today we had uh, Christian Marister from CoModule, uh, who's talking to us about how to build a startup with physical products. So if you haven't checked out the other episodes, um, please go back, they're on YouTube or just subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's well worth it. Um, and as I mentioned, like when we've, recorded the first episode the world seemed like a bit of a darker place um, and Rain was talking optimistically about how the pandemic is going to end and we need to urgently be thinking now about you know what kind of starts how our startups are going to be uh, what kind of world they're going to be helping create afterwards and you know he was right you know we can see a lot more optimism right now things are looking up um, but yeah please do go back listen to those episodes and uh, there may be another season on the way soon next year so uh, follow at Startup Estonia to learn more about that um, and you know if you are interested in starting up in Estonia like all the people that we've featured then visit startupestonia.ee those guys are like really eager to help provide lots of help with everything from startup visa to contacts to legal documents so just reach out to them um, 
and you know it's so that's one of the best things about doing business in estonia is that it's so easy to reach out for anyone and ask for their advice it's you know we're like a family so this is the end of season three there may be a fourth season on the way thank you for listening and wherever you are in the world wherever you happen to be listening however you choose to create a startup good luck because it doesn't matter whether you're working on a startup to help save the world from this virus or if you've just got a startup that's going to make the world slightly better for a few people the world needs you more than ever thank you very much goodbye